Hello, you're listening to Unlocking Landscapes, a podcast about people and places. I'm your host, Daniel Greenwood. This is the second part of two episodes with author Julian Hoffman. The first episode was about living with pelicans and bears in northern Greece, where Julian lives. It's a belter, so make sure to check that out. Julian has published two books of non-fiction with a strong focus on landscapes, wildlife and heritage. In 2012, Julian's debut book, The Small Heart of Things, was published and in 2019 it was followed by Irreplaceable, The Fight to Save Our Wild Places. Irreplaceable is the main subject of discussion in this episode. Julian does that rare thing for a nature writer and centres communities within the landscapes he writes about, placing people at the heart of conservation. Irreplaceable is a great example of this, with Julian writing about local people the world over, battling to save special places, habitats and species. Irreplaceable was a highly commended finalist for the 2020 Wainwright Prize for Writing on Global Conservation. It's one of my favourite books of its kind. In this episode, we pick up right where we left off from episode one with a question to Julian about his experiences of getting to know local people and telling their stories through his writing. We cover some pretty deep topics in this episode. Things like how the mathematics of life mean you can only connect with a handful of places in a meaningful way, the poverty of language around brownfields, convincing politicians to pretend they're jumping spiders, life-altering experiences in the North Kent marshes, Oliver Rackham and the loss of meaning in the landscape, and of course, the importance of local green spaces in the pandemic and beyond. I loved speaking to Julian and I really hope you enjoy this episode. That ties in perfectly with what Thanks I for tuning in. Don't forget this is a two-parter. Your so check out the first episode where me and Julian talk about local compared so check to out the first as you episode do where Julian talks about living with your wonderful and bears book, Irreplaceable. Thanks. And I really Bye. mean that. I really love this book. Everyone should read this book. And if that teaches you how to speak to communities that you're engaging with as a visitor because these people could shun you couldn't they if you're if you're visiting somewhere to write a book about a landscape that's not where you live and they don't know you i think one of the successes in your book is you're writing about nature conservation and wildlife but you're doing it at a human level and it, it's something that i think one of the things that i enjoy about books like yours is that sort of journalistic element it's kind of like a search it's a search for truth not just about about nature, but you have to do it through engaging with people. And it, I've got these images now of you in the local tavern in in uh, Presper chatting with the farmers. And I can totally understand how you would have been sitting in that environment and trying to to understand maybe the politics and how they'd respond to certain things. And but yeah, just generally, how does how has that that experience informed the way you go and speak to new communities of people? I think at the heart of it, you, 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 it's absolutely imperative to, to approach other places and other communities that you wish to write about with as much openness and as much heartfulness as possible to um, have empathy for the stories that aren't going to be your stories, to listen carefully, to not impose yourself upon a story, um, and to sift through the kind of details in a sensitive a manner as you can. Because 
even though some of the places I went to in, in whilst writing and researching Irreplaceable, I went back to a number of times to try and increase my understanding and my familiarity with the place and its people. I was still effectively a tourist. And there's no there's no uh, conceivable way around that issue. You're stuck with it, really. The sheer mathematics of life means that for most of us, there's only a handful of places that we can well and truly come to know with the kind of um, intimacy of long tenure. There's, there's no way really around that. Presp is one of them for me and a couple of others in my life. But it means that you can't really devote more than a fairly short amount of time to other places in order to tell their stories. But you can absolutely alter your approach and you can be open to the qualities that exist there rather than uh, imprint the land or the people with what you want the story to be. And that can be unnerving at times because I think most writers set out with at least an idea of what they hope a book or a story will um, be. But that's often not the case, you know, and you arrive in a place and it's very different from how you imagined it to be. And it's really critical to, to remove as much of your own kind of self-consciousness about that as possible and to try and act as a, uh, to try and telegraph the kind of stories that are already in place um, and that you're simply mediating in many respects. And there's, there's something, Julian, that you, I'm not sure you put it in a blog post, you put it on Twitter some years ago that has really stuck with me. And I, I reread the, the chapter about the Who Peninsula this morning, um, the first the first chapter of Irreplaceable, and it was making me think about that a lot of what these communities are doing is simply taking notice of things that some people deny are even there, or just take have no interest. And often that's wildlife. But you said, but you know, be it on Twitter or on a on a blog post or in one of your books, maybe effectively the observation is an act of defiance, particularly mm -hmm. in in the conservation movement or, you know, protecting a, a space from being developed or something like that. And I think that's, that's really, that's a really powerful thing to, to bear in mind and, and a way to, to see the world. Thank you. Um, yeah, there, you know, I think that particularly as we uh, live with two great environmental issues right now climate change and, and biodiversity loss those are the two overriding concerns i think for our future um and our present of course but how it pans out into the future and it's the it's the observation that is so essential to determining a course a course of action a course of change a course of transformation transformation because I think and I understand this people's lives are busy people have families people have jobs often people have precarious jobs or on zero hour contracts or they have uh, ill health or they have elderly relatives and care homes to worry about so to add yet further pressure by acknowledging these grave crises that we live amidst can be absolutely shattering for a lot of people but it's essential also to own up to them, to be honest with them. And I think that's where observation is truly an act of defiance, because I think that we, we live within a, uh, an economic system 
uh, and a political, a supporting political framework that is heavily invested in the ruination of the living world. And that economic system is premised on an illusion. It's premised on our ability to buy ourselves out of these great many um, uh, tragedies that we are need to confront, that we can somehow loosen the load and unburden ourselves through consumption and consumerism. And yet I think what we really need is to, to strike down at the core of, of these matters and to observe, to witness, to pay attention, to recognize, to acknowledge. And in the course of writing Irreplaceable, I understood very quickly just how many people are doing that. They're often unsung. They're very ordinary people. That's how they would have described themselves to me over repeated visits. Um, they were shopkeepers and teachers and soldiers and nurses. And yet they were doing this. They were involved in the deliberate act of witnessing and observing because they had recognized that what loss meant and what loss what action is required in order to prevent loss. And I found that profoundly galvanizing, that that ability to recognize in the place you call home, to observe through its details, either a diminishing of the amplitude of biodiversity or a poor environment uh, that's unfolding on your doorstep was really to acknowledge these far greater crises in a way. Um, and to prepare a space for acting. And there's, there's a fantastic uh, photographer called Chris Jordan, who is probably most famous for documenting with unrelenting honesty, the loss of Lysang albatrosses in the island of Midway. Um, birds that are born with a burden of plastic in their stomachs because they're fed uh, they're fed them by their parents who mistake plastic debris in the Pacific Ocean as being uh, small uh, squid and other bits of seafood that they would feed to the young. And these young albatrosses are literally weighted by human detritus in their bellies that when it comes to leave their nest, they simply cannot fly. There's too much ingested plastic for them to be able to leave the island and to go foraging at sea for themselves. And Chris Jordan, in, he's documented this in a heartbreaking and honest, sometimes brutally honest fashion. Um, he would wait until the, the feathered remains rotted down sufficiently so all that was left was basically a bowl of plastic, often comprised of hundreds of identifiable pieces, cigarette lighters, straws, chip bits of a coffee lid, inside this kind of ghostly echo of the albatross. So its skeleton would be there and some tattered remains of feathers and just this almost as an offering, a plastic offering at the heart of the bird. Um, and I realized how important his work was when he started talking about what grief means, because I think that by observing and by being a witness can often bring us in uh, contact with an enormous amount of grief. And I think it's important to recognize that and not to kind of push it to one side, because as Chris Jordan said, grief isn't the same as sadness or despair. Grief, he said, is the same as love. Grief is a feeling of love for something that we've either lost or that we're losing. And I think by grieving, by witnessing, 
by engaging in these losses, we also enable ourselves to act on them. And I think that's of vital importance to, to shift a kind of hopefulness that can be off, off that can often be kind of wishy-washy in character, because hope is a word we use on almost a daily basis. But to shift hope into what I call radical hopefulness, which is premised not um, as a noun, but as a verb. So it's not hope itself, but it's the act of doing that really makes hope possible. And I think that observing and witnessing is the very heart of that practice. And tying in with that, there's a great quote in, on page 34 in Irreplaceable in the hardback from Jill Moore, who's one of the people that you speak to, spoke to in the um, Who Peninsula. She says, the landscape can't say, excuse me, here I am. I'm beautiful. It can't do that. And it's so true. And I, I was thinking as well about the way we have these prejudiced views of what is beautiful and what is valuable which kind of draws us into looking at the, the kind of number one habitat in people's mind for developments, which is brownfields. Because a number of the places you talk about in Irreplaceable are places that people would call wastelands, um, places that are earmarked for housing development. But really, brownfields are some of the richest habitats that we have, the richest landscapes we have, not just in terms of all the species you find there, but also the the cultural history of industry and um, I mean, we can talk about Swanscombe Marshes, which is a place in Kent, which is threatened with the construction of a theme park um, at the moment. And hopefully it, it will be saved. But it's home to the distinguished jumping spider. I suppose we should just say, why do you think places like Brownfields, even though they are so negatively viewed why do you think they are so important thanks for that uh daniel um it's nice to to hear jill uh moore's name mentioned because she was so fundamental in in helping stop the proposed um estuary airport development of the who peninsula um a development that was wholeheartedly backed by London's then mayor and, of course, um, the UK's current prime minister, Boris Johnson. And uh, the Who Peninsula, which kind of moves us on to Brownfield, it was also a kind of unloved landscape, the North Kent marshes. Because um, you began by talking about some places, don't they seem to have a kind of peripheral role or per peripheral space, let's say, in our, in our cultural imaginations. And I think marshland is one of those. Um, you know, it's long had these connotations of dreariness and, um, you know, being a bit grim and bland and bleak even. But of course, when we really attune ourselves to places, you see this astonishing, the, the great tapestry of life, this fantastic mosaic of, of um, living beings, and you know, about some 300,000 birds winter around the Hoop Peninsula in those marshes. And, you know, it's just this, these great wakes of wings that, that are crisscrossing the estuary and over the mudflats. And so when we attune ourselves to, to movement and to the lives of other species, there's an extraordinary amount of beauty in often those unloved landscapes. And good portions of, of the Hoop Peninsula were Brownfield as well. And I think with Brownfield, what we suffer from 
first and foremost, is the poverty of language. Because we've, we have two, essentially we have two terms that um, are in constant use in Britain to decide on where development should go, to decide what is important and what isn't, and that's greenfield and brownfield. And while I'm a wholehearted supporter of, of greenfield and to ensure that urban sprawl doesn't sort of leach out, uh, you know, into the into the countryside, in all honesty, there's there's quite a bit of greenfield that is ecologically barren and sterile. And brownfield, which is a simplified terminology for saying something is um, devoid of life. That's what people are generally saying when they talk of brownfield, utilizing it for development. It can be the most exquisite and extraordinary haven or refuge of glittering life. So I think this is the fundamental problem that we've got ourselves locked into terminology, which quite often is meaningless because it bears little resemblance to the actuality of a place. And while I was writing Irreplaceable, you know, I spent time with a fantastic bug life ecologist called Sarah over at Canvey Wick, which is on the other side of the North Kent marshes uh, on, on the coast of Essex. And it was Brownfield. But what a joyous, wondrous, captivating place it was, because it was just an exquisite dwelling ground for all kinds of invertebrate life. You had beetles and bees and different bugs. I mean, it was just truly glittering with life. And as Sarah said to me when I asked, how do you shift that narrative? How do you alter the perception of a place that has been so thoroughly kind of um, ingrained into the cultural memory, it seems, of a, of a people. She says, bring them down to it. And they brought local councillors down to this place. And I could imagine them. She said that they, where they, where they came down on a summer's evening, a large number of local Essex councillors. And she said, to begin with, they didn't know what to do. They felt very uncomfortable and out of place in this landscape. And suddenly she's, her and her fellow ecologists said, you know, get down on your hands and knees, pretend you're a bug. And they did. And I can just imagine this group of, you know, counselors, you know, crawling around to the point where they loved it so much that they were really, really heartbroken when she said that it's time to go at the end. Because they started identifying with this place on a completely different level and recognizing its inherent value for species that are so, so, so much smaller than us, that by and large, we just take them for granted. We, they're kind of, they're cast off to one side as being unimportant. But you ground yourself at the level of a shrill carder bee, let's say, and wow, the world is a different place down there. And suddenly this landscape, this brownfield landscape, which might seem nothing to us standing upright as five or six foot tall humans becomes this other entire world of possibility. And I think that's one of the keys to getting people to understand the importance of um, Brownfield beyond that terminology itself. And of course, what's critically important about Brownfield is that it provides sanctuary to a lot of species that have either gone extinct or were believed to be extinct and hadn't been seen in Britain for decades and decades and decades. So I think of the Canvey uh, Island um, ground beetle, I think of the small ranunculus, 
Ridiculous moth. These were species that were believed to be gone. Um, but they were rediscovered or they returned by being by uh, adhering to brownfield sites. And that's still often the only sites you can find some of these species. So they locate something into a landscape that we have abused by calling it brownfield that is profoundly important for their own uh, life cycles. And, you know, you can think of the horrid ground weaver, weaver spider in, um, in Plymouth. Its entire existence as a species was in two or three abandoned quarries, brownfield quarries, literally in, within the city limits of Plymouth. And there was a plan to, to build houses over them that would have threatened, basically, you know, the, the world's entire population potentially, of horrid crowned weaver spiders. So they are these extraordinary havens. And that brings us up to Swanscombe Marsh because the distinguished jumping spider is actually, to the very best of our knowledge, only found in two places in the United Kingdom. One is uh, in a site on the other side of the river in Essex, and the other site is Swanscombe Marshes, which, as you say, is now currently slated for being developed into a multi-billion pound resort uh, theme park Disneyland let's say called London Resort um, but it's home to to it's home to a species that exists only in one of two places and I think first and foremost uh, leaving aside the nightingales and the bearded reelings and the ravens that that nest there we need to ask ourselves questions of an ethical nature is it morally right to potentially erase, because this one species exists in only one of two places, uh, to potentially erase an entire species from the United Kingdom in order to build a resort? These are some of the great questions that I think aren't raised sufficiently. And they're often kind of, you know, they're pushed to one side by suggestions of biodiversity offsetting or net biodiversity gain, that somehow we can um, add greater diversity to the British landscape in terms of its wildlife while simultaneously developing a place of importance. But you can never bring a species back at least without a significant reintroduction. Once it's gone, it's, it's gone from those places. And with the distinguished jumping spider, you would knowingly threaten one of only two places which we believe it to exist in. And so Swanscombe is really going to be critical. Um, the decision will be critical, I think, because you have a government in place that claims on one hand that it is serious about tackling both the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, and yet its actions suggest completely the opposite. I think the thing that worries me about that question, the, the ethical question about losing a species to extinction by building a theme park is... I think it's a, a story that was in, it might have been in a book by E.O. Wilson mm -hmm. about, you may have heard of this, about an American logging company from, I think it was maybe in the early 1900s or the late 1800s, probably in the 20th century. They were logging an area that was the, the last remaining habitat for a certain species of American woodpecker. Mm -hmm. And the, the owner of the, the logging company was said, if you continue with this, 
this woodpecker will become extinct. Please stop. Yeah. And they continued and the woodpecker is now extinct. So yeah. we have form as yeah. let's say Western society has form of not coming through on the right side of history with that. Um, but I really hope that things have changed in a, in a hundred years. It was really interesting to hear you talking about the, I think you said, you can hear my pages moving, the poverty of language. And you were talking about how we can shift that narrative, <laughs> get counsellors to uh, pretend that they're, they're jumping spiders. That is an image which I, I won't forget today for sure. Um, <clears throat> but do you think that we're, t- we're talking about prejudice as well in the way that people view the landscape, which can also then spill out into the way that people view other people. And then, of course, we talked about the prejudice against other species of, you know, culling um, animals that are blamed for things they're not doing. But do you think there's, with, with you know, that terrible word brownfield, it's a kind of failure to accept that human landscapes can be places that are wild, so Swanscombe Marshes is an old industrial landscape. It's got a lot of spoil from, I think it was the Euro Tunnel creation, um, but it's not brown. It, if you go there in the summer months, I last went there, well, August 2015, and it was covered in wildflowers and butterflies and insects. And it was a grey, windy day. It was it was very colourful. But I think there's also something that you do in in your book, Irreplaceable, which a lot of other people who are writing about nature and landscape need to do more of, in my opinion, is to actually focus as well on communities of people and see that people are key to conservation. I mean, that's completely through all of your writing. And from my experience of of working in the environmental sector and volunteering and stuff, it's absolutely the case that you only save these places if people care about them. So Swanscombe Marshes is getting... Is, is moving towards getting more protection because people care about it now because you know you've recorded at least one podcast about Swanscombe there's there's other people who've been doing lots of media about it there's a petition with 20,000 signatures so people have to be involved and I, I really do feel particularly as someone who consumes nature writing books and and things like that we need to start getting people involved in things more communities and more and recognizing that that is one of the most important aspects of conservation. I mean, I certainly felt when I when I started writing Irreplaceable that I wanted people to be at the heart of the book as much as place and, and wildlife. There, there is a lot of uh, writing about the natural world that is can be extremely devoid of humans. And it, it, it can, to some degree, reinforce the distinctiveness or the separation between ourselves and the natural world or at least that's how I've come to feel in kind of recent years and I wanted to in my own work at least kind of address that to some degree um, because we are part of this extraordinary uh, shared world and our actions matter and our connections are interwoven with the wild world on any at any given stage in, in in our development you know even simply stepping outside into the wind and breathing the air that is fundamentally um, part of being uh, being woven into this extraordinary web of life and what I recognized I think as well in, from my own work is that in order to tackle some of the great issues that we face we have to try and dwell 
more deeply on that exact thing that you you mentioned earlier that people will really only protect the place they love and what i recognize whilst writing is that these stories are already out there you know all i kind of did with the book in many ways was to try and give them a place on a page but the real work is the communities and the individuals up and down lands across the planet that are that are that are happening all the time around us and very few of those stories make it much further unfortunately than local media some of them if they're lucky enough to get as far as that i should say some stories um gain a considerable uh, greater traction and make it international or even international media as the case with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, for example, in the United States and Alaska, which the former President Trump had decided to open up to drilling rights. Um, but by and large, a lot of these stories remain unsung. And I think that, you know, the, 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 ep the epigraph that I opened the book with from the wonderful American writer Barry Lopez, who sadly died recently on Christmas Day, was that a testament of minor voices can inform us of the special qualities of any place. And so I saw the book as a testament of voices, really, that I wanted to bring into assembly these extraordinary and remarkable people who, as I say, would all describe themselves as ordinary in, uh, in an effort to kind of elevate the profile of these places but also ways of living differently because what i learned and i you know the six years that it took me to write this book um i learned so much from so many different people um and these were people who understood what loss meant and who were arguing for a very very different measure of well-being in our relationships in a wider sense with the natural world they were people who were capable of expanding the sense of home so that it incorporated the more than human so the place wasn't just a physical structure like the house that i'm sitting and speaking to you from right now but was the lands and rivers and lakes around it um but these are stories that aren't often uh, that we often don't hear about, uh, certainly uh, in any kind of mainstream media. And I feel that they're imperative to kind of looking more closely at how we lead our lives, particularly if we wish to flourish into the future alongside rather than against the species that we share this planet with. You're absolutely right. There's so much happening at a community level people volunteering their time, giving, you know, huge amounts of energy to things on top of everything else they have to do in life anyway. And it, it really has to be recognised that what people contribute to community causes can be quite costly to them in, yes. uh, on a personal level in terms of their health, well-being, financially as well. And you know, a lot of these people, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not wealthy landowners or uh, business people. You also mentioned Barry Lopez, yeah, he he passed away. It was at Christmas Day, wasn't it? Christmas Day, that's right. Yeah, I, last year I read Horizons, his latest mm -hmm, book. Mm -hmm. oh, so good. I mean, he is truly one of one of the best writers. Yeah, I've... one of my touchstones, really. Yeah. Um, so I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, but one of the ones, which is probably, I'm sure some people might think it as well, is that you talked about living in in Greece um, by the Presper Lakes. But you've got a real soft spot for Kent. Yeah, yeah. So how how did that come about? 
Um, I mean, it came about in a, you know, it, the, the origin of the book was in Kent itself. And, um, you know, back in, I think it was 2013, when I started writing the book, I, I'd already left London quite, quite some years earlier, but I'd, I'd booked a trip back to London to spend a week carrying out some research for a completely different book that I'd intended at the time to write. Uh, and during that week, and I'd, I'd sort of allocated various days in museums and archives here and there, I received a message via Twitter. And I've always liked this story because, you know, there's, there's often talk, you know, Twitter can be a real mess and a nightmare and, you know, but actually it, it led me into discovering a whole world of extraordinary people and stories because I had a message, a private message on Twitter from Jill Moore, Jill Moore, who you quoted earlier, uh, introducing herself and asking if I would come to visit the Hu Peninsula because it was gravely under threat. And as it happened, I had one single free day in my schedule that week. That was all that I had left before I returned home. And I thought, well, there may be some possibility to, to write a blog post or a newspaper article about whatever this threat is and this, this place of theirs. So I, I took the train out of St. Pancras and it was early April and snow came lancing out of the sky and it was bitter with winds. Uh, and I met Jill Moore and two of her friends on the Hu Peninsula and over the course of the next few hours, my world changed for me because these three people showed me what we stand to lose. They made me recognize in a way that had never happened before what loss truly means. I think for a lot of people, and it was certainly the case for me, uh, loss in the natural world is, is numerical, it's statistical. It's about so many acres of meadows that are lost or a percentage of woodlands that have been destroyed or it's about how many hundreds of thousands of breeding birds are no longer with us. But numbers for a great many of us, um, excluding the excellent mathematicians who probably render the world very differently from me, um, it's really difficult to get a grasp on, to fill out with its kind of deeper meanings. But that day, in this kind of snowstorm on the Hu Peninsula, where, as I say, 300,000 birds winter, and I watched marsh harriers struggling through these trembling bands of weather, and, you know, there were avocets, and there were red shanks, and there were all these extraordinary birds rising up out of the marshes. Um, I finally understood what loss meant. It suddenly became very vivid and relatable and real. Because if the estuary proposal that Boris Johnson supported had gone ahead, um, more than half of the Hu Peninsula would have been demolished. And along with the two entire villages, sorry, three entire villages and their 13th century churches. So it would have literally meant the obliteration of homes, both human homes and homes for wildlife. And I took the train back to London that afternoon, having spent those hours in the company of three remarkable yet very everyday people and realized that I needed to write a book about the irreplaceable, what we stand to lose unless we change course. And I repeatedly went back to the North Kent marshes because I'd never experienced a place so beguiling and so atmospheric and so 
just extraordinary the way light shifts and passes over the estuary and sweeps through those grasses and all of these little rivulets and creeks winding water out to the river the way they glow and they turn this kind of silvery cast when the clouds pass over just phenomenal and there are nightingales and there are turtle doves in summer and you've got this great sweep of light off the estuary and you've got boats riding in as they would have done during dickens's time not the same type of boat but still boats because of course he set his great novel great expectations on the peninsula so it just all melded together into this place that i fell deeply head over heels in love with and kept going back and jill moore who sadly died a few years ago but she became a very good friend of mine over the course of repeated visits and i think if if one person was the heart and soul of irreplaceable it was jill and for those who have met her because i introduced her to many people over the years she was an extraordinarily small small woman but she 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 held and carried the fire, the fierce fire of giants in her heart. Yeah, forgive me on that one, Judy. And I, I just remember that she did pass away, as you say in the That's book, okay. in 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very sad loss. And, you know, but her, her kind of everything that she did on that peninsula, everything she sought to achieve and did achieve with its preservation, uh, at least for now, you know, will live on. Her, her actions are enduring and will endure. And that's a great legacy. Um, a friend of mine is from that part of the world, um, Peter Beckenham. You've that's met, right, who I've heard. Before. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully he's going to join me um, for an episode of Unlocking Landscapes in Future. I mean, hopefully we could actually go to the North Kent marshes, but um, he, he loves cliff pools and... He he's he spent a lot of time there, and he's t informed me so much about how special it is. So yeah, yeah. So, yeah. If I could just follow up with something, uh, if Go you don't it. mind, that's Go connected both with the North Kent marshes, but also Swanscombe, because uh, I, I didn't want this to go uh, unsaid that we are still living amidst a horrific pandemic, and. Of the many things that I hope we are learning from this pandemic, which it seems was caused ultimately by the obliteration of wild places and the, and the crossover of a zoonotic disease into human communities. One of the things that I hope we're learning is the vital importance of local green spaces to the communities that live nearby them. And cases or campaigns like Swanscombe fit into this well because while the resort the london resort is talked up in terms of an enormous amount of investment from billionaires and bankers um and a large number of jobs as well although i understand a large number of them will be uh temporary and only part-time that what it also fails to take into account just how crucial that place is for the people who already live there, not the people who will visit on weekends by train from London. But right now, that that's this extraordinary sanctuary when societies across the planet are living in lockdown, you're not really able to uh, go further afield for exercise. And at a time when the kind of mental health uh, impacts of a pandemic are really only just starting to come to the surface. 
I think it's critical that we acknowledge and start making space for greater amounts of greenery in our urban and suburban landscapes, and certainly not less. Um, because this is the, these are the critical spaces that are meant to be right on our doorstep, not further afield. And to erase one of those places steals away from the community that lives there all of the other possibilities and potentialities that exist within that space as it is. And the great environmental writer, Oliver Rackham, he, he said that there were four types of loss in the landscape. He said that there is the loss of beauty, there is the loss of freedom and open spaces. That was his second one. Thirdly, there's the loss of historic vegetation and wildlife. And fourthly, and perhaps most importantly for Oliver Rackham, there was the loss of meaning. But I think there's one other loss that it's really imperative that we take note of. And it's one that's cumulative in character and kind of overarching in, in that it knots together those other four types of losses. And that's the loss of connection. Because when we strip away these places of importance out of local communities, we steal with them all the possibilities for contact with nature, for access to green spaces, for uh, improved mental and physical health, for the sheer beauty and magic and mystery of birdsong. We take all of that away. And of course, going back to your, it's only when we love places that we can save them. Ultimately, it's only when we care about the natural world in a wider sense that we can make the changes necessary in order to preserve it into the future. But we lose contact, what the great American writer Robert Michael Pyle called the extinction of experience. We take that away. And of course, it's not then just the extinction of wild species, but of the human experience with those wild species too. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, green spaces in the pandemic have been, they, they will have saved people's lives. Yeah. Um, it's where the only places that people could have gone to yeah. exercise, you know, being outdoors, it's just so good, good for your health. I mean, I grew up in, in London, the, the green spaces in London, there are many of them, but they yeah. are absolutely vital. I mean, people, it's, it's a kind of well-known cliche that people say the green spaces of London are London's lungs mm -hmm. because of, you know, pollution in other areas and stuff like that. But I was thinking, but last night I was thinking about what some of the stuff we were going to talk about. And I was thinking about how, when how many thousands of people visit certain spaces in London, like certain woodlands, some of the woodlands where I used to work and, and stuff, and they just pass through, but they have this really deep connection with that space because they know what it does for them on a personal level in terms of their health. It's just one of, I feel like it's one of the most promising and hopeful things in life is people's access for these, for these places and all of the good that comes yeah. from it because it's it's very very difficult to to calculate the financial benefits of these spaces for people and you know also on a kind of spiritual level the the impact that has for people is is vast as well so i, I couldn't agree more with what what you just said julian i've got two more questions for you before we wrap up the f first one is what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow a similar path to you say in becoming a writer or maybe making a big decision to move somewhere away from home and trying something different, what advice would you have? 
I mean, I think in, in, in some respects, it's probably the same advice for, for, for both. Um, it's to go out into the world with, with curiosity and empathy and care. Um, it's to make connections, connections with other places, with other people, with other species. Um, in terms of writing, it's to read as you would like to be read, to, to absorb all of those different books that are out there in the world with the same kind of attention and generosity that you would like your own books to be read with, because they're the great teachers of the books that already exist out there. And I think to follow a path that feels right for you. Um, and that's, it might sound cliched on, on some respects, but it's, it's extraordinary how much pressure there is to not do that. And even in my own field of work, of course, there's constant, constantly discussions and disagreements about what nature writing is, what natural history writing is, um, how they should be done. And of course, ultimately, they're, they're, they're simply forms of nonfiction that have some kind of interest in the natural world. And I think far more important for the writer is to follow a path that interests them and to explore it with as much heartfulness as you can. Because I think that ultimately the stories are out there and it requires that kind of decisive openness to, uh, or I should say responsiveness to the world around you that creates the good writers, that enables the voices that matter to, to rise off the page. So I think that was probably my advice to not be distracted by what others tell you, but to, to follow that path that feels ultimately right for you. That's great advice. Thank you, Julian. The final question I have for you is that the Unlocking Landscapes Fund is limitless and we'd like to provide you with a large amount of money to invest in environmental or community <laughs> projects, however much money you need, we, we've got your back. What would you fund and why? So I'm just imagining what limitless money might even mean uh, for somebody who doesn't have very much. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a fairly easy one for me because I would, I would take that money and I would, I would give it to those local campaigns, not necessarily just the ones that I wrote about in the book, but across the planet, there are local campaigns to protect and preserve for the well-being of both human communities and wildlife communities, places of extraordinary importance, places that get very, very little attention and that people do uh, voluntarily out of their own time. They often lack the resources to hire lawyers to um, file cases against municipal councils that are desperate to turn a set of allotments into a car park or to turn an, um, an ancient woodland into a service station. So I would give that money to those people who are fighting every spare hour they have in a day to protect what matters and to give them every best chance and to give them the best chance possible to making sure that those places are still with us in the future. That's a wonderful positive to end on, Julian. And I hope anyone who can fund that work is inspired to do so by what Julian's just said. 
Well, I've had a great time talking to you, Julian. It's been really fascinating and inspiring. I've really loved hearing about all the butterflies in Presper and all of the the amazing landscapes there and also your your experiences in, in Kent. So really, I'd just like to say thank you so much for giving up so much of your time today. And thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really enjoyed it. Okay, cheers, Julian. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget this is a two-parter. So check out the first episode where Julian talks about living with pelicans and bears in northern Greece. Thanks. Bye.